Before I kick off episode 54, I wanted to share some exciting news about my new website at joshuastamper.com, which is being constructed and will be launched soon. The site will have the Aspire podcast, blog posts, and a whole host of resources for educational leaders. In this upcoming week, I will be kicking off the website with a giveaway, so make sure you go to www.joshstamper.com and sign up. The winner will be announced on Twitter and Instagram, and I hope you enjoyed this week's interview with a fantastic educational leader. Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. I am thrilled to have Amy Fast on the podcast. Amy is a high school assistant principal in Oregon, and she just announced she has been promoted as the principal of the same high school. Amy is a speaker, blogger, and author of It's the Mission, Not the Mandates, Defining the Purpose of Public Education. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And as you know, the show is centered on leadership development, and I would love to hear your personal leadership journey on how you went from the classroom to a high school principal. Yeah, absolutely. So I was actually an elementary school teacher for the first 10 years um, as an educator. I taught both fourth and fifth grades. I looped with some of my classes some years as well. So I, I did that until I became an instructional coach 11 years in. And at that time, I was an instructional coach for both uh, elementary and middle school levels. And I was also doing math intervention and when I was getting, uh, when I was doing my instructional coaching, I went back to school to get my doctorate. And part of my doctoral degree, I needed to pick up some extra classes along with that. And I already had my ESOL endorsement. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I should take some administrative classes because that will fulfill that prerequisite, and I can gain some leadership skills, hopefully, and insights along the way. And I gained my administrative credentials through my doctorate. Around that same time, a high school assistant principal job uh, came open and the high school principal at the time called me up and said, um, I'd love for you to be my assistant principal. Would you be interested in applying for the job? And I, I hadn't really thought about, um, I'm embarrassed to say I hadn't really thought about administration other than just taking those classes. And to be honest, I had no idea why I was even uh, getting my doctorate other than I'm a pretty restless person and I just was you know, ready for some next steps and, you know, growing a little bit and pushing myself. Um, but what was really appealing to me was that one of the classes that I had looped with, I had in fourth grade and then in fifth grade, were at the high school as well. And so I was going to get to follow them through their high school experience as their assistant principal. And that turned out to be quite a blast. And I really found my niche at the high school, the, the energy, the complexity, the teenagers. I mean, it just was right up my alley. I originally had gotten into teaching fifth grade because I thought, what's the highest grade you can go and still have those kids all day long? I wanted to make sure that the relationships were central to the work that I did. So it's, it's been a really fun journey. And I just found out I'm going to be the principal of this high school, same high school, uh, starting next year. So this is my 18th year in the same district. And year 19, I'll be serving as high school principal. And I'm terrified and excited. <laughs> and uh, it should be an adventure. So first off, congratulations on the new position. And then Thank second you. of all, what are some of the goals that you have going into a school that you've already been at for so long? Well, so this is my fourth year as assistant principal. The goals are pretty specific to our unique uh, situation and our, and our u- unique community. One of the things that's been interesting about my 
tenure over the last four years as assistant principal is that we've been undergoing major construction at the high school. So we had an $80 million bond pass when I started there. And this year we have absolutely no gyms at all. And we have a school of 2,200 students. Um, so assemblies we've had to be creative with. And just the the school spirit kind of takes a bit of a, a backseat when you're going through major construction. And so honestly, right now, what I'm most excited about is getting every every person in our building, staff and students alike, under the same roof of the gym and just kind of shaping the narrative of who we are and getting jazz to start the year and really bringing some some joy, some passion and and some unity into the high school, which we've always been known for having a pretty um, excellent culture. So sustaining that work is huge. And then we're, we're a really successful school academically um, and we have really great programs. So making sure that I honor the work that was before me and sustain those programs and, and tweak them to, to the benefit of students and to, to honor what, what teachers want to see with those uh, programs moving forward is a huge priority of mine. I'm someone who's really susceptible to loving change, which I know makes me quite, quite unique. So I'm very cognizant of being careful to not throw unnecessary changes mm-hmm. uh, at the school. And in your experience as an administrator, which leadership skills were the most difficult to develop? For me, the hardest skills to develop are the ones that are the managerial skills. And it's not because I can't do those because I think those are the easiest skills to learn. I just don't like them very much. Um, And so to me, it's learning to continue to prioritize the things that you don't necessarily like to to do that don't even give you a big bang for your buck, but are important that keep you safe, keep you compliant. You know what I mean? Keep keep you following policy and and practice. And so those pieces for me personally are the hardest um, simply because they're not inspiring parts of my job or thrilling parts of my work. And so I think that's what makes it hard. I think there's a ton of hard things that I do that that make me lose sleep at night. Having hard conversations with staff uh, was, I think, something that even though it may come naturally to some people, it's still hard to learn because our tendency is if, if someone is recruited into a leadership position, they're likely uh, pretty socially intelligent and empathetic. And so it weighs on people heavily to have those conversations. So I think that was not necessarily a steep learning curve about the skills, but a steep learning curve about myself. How to do a lot of introspection about, you know, what is what is the best way for me to go about this conversation to preserve my own why and preserve the other person's dignity. And sometimes that entails not following the lead of someone that came before you or not taking the advice of others and doing it um, your own way that still works. Um, but figuring that out for yourself is a hard is a hard learning curve as well. Most definitely. And I think that just brings up the point yeah. that when you're going through school, you don't have those opportunities yeah. to actually have those crucial conversations. It's not something you right. can read in a textbook. You actually have to experience it and kind of have a certain trial and error aspect to it. And there's there's something to be said for when you're talking about this person in theory that doesn't exist and isn't sitting in front of you. And then when this person in actuality is someone you've known for years and you went to their baby shower and you know what I mean? You know their family and you know their heart and you know their work ethic and you're still having to have that conversation. That's a whole different ballgame. And so I kind of want to lead into another question um, based on what you just said was, you know, early in your educational career, obviously you had multiple leadership experiences. And a question I get often is, if I'm trying to get into a leadership role, what experiences do I need to have? So I'm just curious, what what do you think for our aspiring right. leaders? 
So what I look for most when I'm looking at someone who would work on our team um, is honestly a history of excellence in any position that they have. Someone who's trying too hard to climb the ladder is actually off-putting to me. So gaining leadership experience, leadership experience in terms of positional experience so that you can get the next job, I don't think is the best way to go about becoming a leader. I think the best way to become a leader is to lead from where you're at in the moment. And people honor that history of excellence. And what I find is that if someone was excellent at my, my coworker, Veronica Chase, who um, is another assistant principal at the high school, she started off as the instructional assistant as a classified staff member. And she um, then became, uh, got an emergency license to be a teacher because she was doing really well in that position and there was a need for a EL teacher and then got recruited to be a teacher on special assignment and then recruited to be a high school administrator. And, you know, she's four years younger than I am and she's been excellent in all her roles. And that's why she has moved up the ladder, not because she was overly ambitious or seeking a position of power, but because she has such great influence that people seek her out. So that, I mean, my advice would just to be to lead from where you're at and, and shoot for excellence wherever that is. And I feel like you have an incredible pulse on the future of education as you travel around and speak and you're very active on social media. So what is the largest barrier that you see to the success of leaders? First of all, there's a discrepancy between what we're asked to measure and what we're judged by in schools and what actually matters for students. And um, I think that that's a real tug and pull for leaders because it takes a tremendous ethical strength to continually re-ground yourself in what you know to be true for human success, student success, what your why is, why you became an educator in the first place. And there can be this overwhelming pressure to look good at the expense of doing good. And so I think for me, I always, my, my, my research base and, and what I tend to gravitate toward in terms of writing and, and speaking when I get the chance is, is pretty big picture, but it's really about aligning our measures and our practices with what we know is crucial to human growth. And I know that's super like way up in the clouds, but I think that really is, it starts at the top in terms of our vision and it trickles down from there. And then we, the, the day-to-day lack of congruency or the tug and pull we feel as leaders is because that vision up top is a little bit off. Mm-hmm. And that's where all, all that trickles down into policies and practices and, and pressure. And if we had a much more aligned vision as a country, then I think that our job would be much easier as administrators in schools. And so as a leader, what is one area you want to change in education? Measuring what matters is huge for me. And my, my conceptual framework is I think I get a bad rap for um, maybe being someone who, who doesn't care about academic achievement. And that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm actually... Uh, high expectations kind of gal was in the classroom, is in my school. But I think that takes 100% of our focus as a, or has for a long time as a country. And the problem is that the that greatness and that growth really lies in the intersection of that academic achievement and someone's intrinsic drive and their soft skills. And so I feel like those two other pieces, the soft skills or the social emotional learning, whatever people want to call it, and that intrinsic drive, that motivation, that that excitement about your learning, that passion to become something and to contribute beyond yourself. If those pieces of the puzzle are in place in schools, and I hate to say it because this might not seem popular, but even measured in schools, um, 
not for the purpose of judging schools, but for the purpose of seeing how we're doing, uh, if we're doing right by students, um, then I feel like that would be the biggest way that we could leverage success in schools moving forward. What are some characteristics that you believe every leader should possess in an administrative position? Two that come to mind right away are seemingly in juxtaposition, but I don't think they are. It's a leader needs to be both humble and confident. And that style can vary, charisma can vary, but being both humble and confident, ready to learn from other people, realizing you don't know it all, being willing to say, I don't know, and I'm sorry, but also having the the strength of character and the excitement about the work and the willing willingness to lean into risks um, and, and be confident enough to keep putting one foot in front of the other and being willing to fail forward in front of your staff and students, that's huge. And then obviously the third, the third I don't know if you call it a skill, would just be to have this really solid why, this grounding in what matters most to you and, and to be almost overly passionate about that to the point where it just exudes from your pores and people can pick up on it wherever you are. I think that's um, important because this work is too hard if we're not moved by some kind of noble mission. And so when you talk about your why, was that something that you really had to convey to get your position that you're now in as a principal? I think that's probably true. I think one of my roles, whether I've just taken it on or whether it's been given to me, has kind of become chief storyteller of our school. And so I, I believe that who we are becomes a story people tell about us, but I also believe that the story we tell about ourselves becomes who we are. And so whether it's through... Twitter or whether it's through talking to community members or whether it's through speaking with students, like just continuing to tell the story of greatness and hope and reiterating that every single day. I think in some ways I'm not the best person for the job. There's a lot of people that do a lot of things better, but I'm, I'm telling the story that people want to read about our school and they want to know how it ends. And so I think that is, I think that is important to someone who is going to lead a school, especially a school as large as ours, 200 staff members and, you know, 2,200 students, uh, there's got to be a congruent message and vision that people can kind of get behind and buy into. I want to give you an opportunity to tell a little bit of your story. What is one initiative you've implemented on your campus that you're extremely proud of? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I did say I like change a lot. So <laughs> we have uh, we've had opportunity through some legislation in Oregon to, at the high school level, spend a million dollars these past few years on things like career technical education and dropout prevention and college uh, readiness. And so a few of the initiatives that I am pretty excited about is we started both a support center and an emotional growth center at our school. Support center being a place that's staffed by a crisis counselor, a behavior specialist, a school psych, a learning resource teacher, an IA, and it's basically a drop-in center for students um, in need of anything, whether it be in need of like hygiene products, whether it be in need of counseling, whether it be in need of community resources, um, and that's really well used these past few years. Also an emotional growth center, which serves our most at-risk population, uh, students who would be traditionally sent to another school to you know contract with that institution to kind of take care of their needs and and our students have been extremely successful in that center because we're focusing on the social emotional aspects of learning and the reflective aspects of learning about themselves and they're able to be with their gen ed peers and so we're able to 
uh, really give them the supports they need to be successful and their discipline data and achievement data speaks to the success of that. I'd say the other initiative, I'm probably the initiative I'm most proud of at our, at our school, and I've talked about it quite a bit, is the, our, our student survey that really is probably one of our most important measures in determining that the work that we do. So we attempt to measure students' engagement, their hopefulness, their feelings of well-being and belonging and how challenging their classes are. And so we really ask them everything there is to know about the school and themselves and then drill down to each individual student to figure out what they need. So that I think those those pieces are are really sources of pride. And then some of the some of the things that we're doing to think outside the box to provide equity of opportunity for our students so that they can access whatever post-secondary dreams they have. We've done a lot of work on that front, like providing a SAT to all juniors. Uh, for free was one thing we did, uh, providing a junior seminar class that goes in tandem with our AVID elective classes so students can explore college and career opportunities, really drilling down to what our students want to do with their lives and having multiple interviews with them over the course of their senior year to predict what their paths will be and how we need to help them realize their their hopes for those paths. So um, there's been a ton of things we've done the last four years. My principal, my, my current boss, always tells me, Amy, nine, not 90. So it's like, you need to have nine ideas, not 90, because I, I typically get excited about too many things too often. But, and nine's quite a few ideas, actually, to try to implement <laughs> at a time. But he's, he gives me nine. So yeah. I want to go back and talk about student voice. I love giving opportunities for people to hear what campus is doing to amplify our students. So what are you doing on your campus to really allow your students to have a part in the school? Sure, absolutely. Well, you know, I, like I said, the student survey is probably our biggest initiative in terms of each individual student having a voice and us um, attaching their words to their their name um, and, and really having them impact our practices in our schools. One of the things that is really powerful that we do in terms of student voice, but is less about impacting our practices and more about impacting culture is we have a unity week at our school and actually we turned it into unity month this year, but we have a voices panel every year. And that is students from each class, uh, 9th through 12th grade, as well as teachers who are in the auditorium behind a curtain. And they're basically reading a story about overcoming an obstacle. And the stories are pretty heavy. They're pretty hard to speak about. They're pretty hard to hear, but they always have a message of hope at the end. So some are talking about, you know, being undocumented and having parents you know, sent back to Mexico. Some are talking about being a gang member and having to get out of, you know, how they were able to get out of that lifestyle. Some are talking about being homeless or, or having family members that use drugs. And, and these are, like I said, really heavy stories, but stories that so much of our student population uh, deal with, you know, and, and when they, the, the beauty of the voices panel is that they don't know who's speaking behind the curtain until that story is done. And then they come out behind the curtain and you basically think, oh, I've seen that person in the halls and they don't hang out in my group, but man, I really, you know, their story resonated with me. And if anything, their bravery resonated with me and I have a ton of respect for them. And every year without fail, it's to a standing ovation. And the kids who were most worried about being the most squirrely in that environment and not being respectful are just amazing and it's, it's a really, truly unifying experience in our school. And it's, I think it's really helped to shape our, our school culture. So that's one way that we provide voice that's like less about, like I said, our policies and our practices, but more just about um, who are you mm -hmm. and, and who is our school. Yeah, so. that's so important. 
One of my favorite quotes is from Nelson Mandela, and it's, I never lose, I either win or I learn. So I just want to talk about a time in your leadership journey that you felt like you lost, but when you reflected, you realized you learned. Oh, that's such a good question. There are so many times (laughs) to choose from. The biggest thing for me is I've been so lucky to have an administrative team that is, is truly family. I mean, we we just work so well together and the synergy since we started working together four years ago has just been off the charts. And there's been a few, you know, the, the honeymoon period for teams wears off just like the honeymoon period in marriages. You know, you go through these cycles of, you know, being like a family that are really real. And that's something we don't learn in our leadership classes is, you know, when that, when that synergy starts wearing down and you're in the weeds and you're just grinding and you're, you know what I mean? And, and then you're disagreeing about things the toll that takes on people, especially good leaders who are conditioned to just take it and not voice concern. You know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. and, and so what I've, for a long time, I think there were things that we were doing that were just little things, like just like in a marriage, just little things that start, you know, why does that person always do that during supervision or what is, whatever it is, they just start wearing people down. And I could tell I was wearing people down and uh, we're just all tired and working so hard. And I think, Two things that I realize is it's not a failure when things like that start breaking down in teams, just like your marriage isn't a failure when you start going through those real patches together. And it's when you come out the other side and you've had that first hard conversation to get together and you get through it, or you are willing to disagree respectfully with each other, or you're willing to allow the other person to make the choice on something that you are really passionate about, or those those times when that is when that has happened and there's maybe been some tension on the team. What I've, what I've realized is not a failure is that we have prioritized our friendship over our work, which I know doesn't sound noble for the mission of the school, but it, it really is what we want our kids to do too, is to prioritize relationships because that's what they're going to have in life that's going to help them feel fulfilled. And so what I, what I feel most proud of is maintaining successful relationships, maintaining a successful team, even in the midst of really, really hard work and going through rough patches together and going through disagreements and coming out the other side as you know, stronger friends, stronger teammates, stronger leaders as a result. And I know that's not like a specific scenario because I've had so many scenarios that I've <laughs> failed at or that have, I felt have failed. But I think that, like you said, that the real success is the lesson that you learn from it. And I don't know if you've read um, Big Potential by Sean Aker. So he talks about the power of teams and that are our, our, basically the idea of this, the whole is greater than the sum of your parts, but much more eloquently than that. And what can come from great teams as opposed to great individuals. So I will never be a successful principal without a successful team. And so my greatest sources of pride are the work we've done as a team going through hardship and coming out the other end even stronger. Um, and that's what I want to see for our students that they can work together with people and come out the other end, having grown and learned more. And that's what I want to see from our teaching staff, that they can collaborate and take risks together and get through hard things and come out even stronger. So I think personally, that's what those failures that I've had relationally are my greatest learning opportunities in this role. And for those starting their leadership journey, what advice do you have for them? Oh, you know, my first year, I said, I don't know, and I'm sorry, I think every single day. So don't try too hard. Stay true to who you are. You got hired for a reason and be humble enough to continue to ask questions 
and continually be willing to learn and fail and take risks um, because people value that, you know, that humanity and being real more so than they value any skill set that you think you're bringing to the job. And in addition to your admin position, you speak at conferences, you blog, and you're very active on social media. How did you find your voice beyond your district? You know, that's a, that's a great question. So I actually, when I wrote my book, part of my contract was uh, to promote myself on Twitter. And I was like, what is Twitter? And then I looked at it and I thought, you know, this is weird. You can only write 140 characters. Like, what can someone say in this? And I, I have this real aversion to self-promotion. So I actually never post anything about my book. I just, but I figured if I post about the ideas in my book, then maybe people will say, hey, you know, that, that sounds interesting. I want to hear more about that. So I just started posting about things that I cared about. And like I say, that kept me up at night. And apparently they kept other people up at night too. And they resonated with them. And, and I think it's just adding merit, adding value to discussions and, and talking about things that matter and that, that people are nervous to talk about, but also that they care a lot about. I think that's really what's leveraged my voice outside of, outside of my own school district. So you brought it up. So for those who haven't had an opportunity to read your book, can you just give us a quick synopsis for our aspiring leaders? Sure. Well, sorry, Roman and Littlefield who published it, but it's kind of a horrible title. It's called It's the Mission, Not the Mandates, Defining the Purpose of Public Education. It's a paragraph in and of itself. But <laughs> the, the, real, the real gist is that it, it's, it started with this question that I had, which is what is the purpose of public education? And if we can't all articulate that with a common answer, then you know, how are we going to ever realize that mission? And so it's basically exploring what is the purpose and what should it be? Um, and like I said, I, I kind of arrive at this conceptual framework that I talked about earlier about the merging of academic achievement, intrinsic drive, and soft skills. And that's, it takes me, you know, a couple hundred pages to get there, but uh, it's pretty dense with research. So if you want, if you want some, some real tangible research about how humans grow and develop and, and what that means our purpose as public schools should be, then that might be the book for you. So in closing, what is the most enjoyable aspect of leadership? I would say this is going to sound really selfish. There's nothing like leadership to facilitate your own growth. And so as a leader, it's really hard not to have a, like a giant mirror held up in front of your face every day of the week. Uh, you learn a lot about yourself and you grow. So that's fulfilling. But also when I see other people seeing something, whether it's a staff member or a student in, a student in themselves that they hadn't seen before, and, and taking risks as a result of seeing that, you know, feeling empowered, uh, feeling like someone believes in them, that it's really exciting to feel like you're a part of that, a part of people realizing their greatness. And so I think realizing your own greatness and helping people realize theirs is by far the best part of leadership. Amy, how can our listeners connect with you on social media? I'm pretty horrible at most platforms except uh, Twitter because I like keeping it short and sweet. So that's become my platform. So I am at FastGran on Twitter and they can find me there. And I'm pretty responsive to any kind of direct messages or, or emails. So they could also uh, shoot me an email if they'd like. And I look forward to hearing from them. Please continue to check out the Aspire podcast. And if you've gotten any value from the show at all, please subscribe and leave a rating review wherever you're listening. Don't forget to use the Aspire Lead hashtag as you continue the conversation on social media. Amy, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you so much for having me.